You're listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. In each episode, we'll talk about two themes from our 2018 reading challenge, 10 to Try. Learn more about the challenge and see a list of all the categories at kcls.org slash 10 to Try. On this episode of The Desk Set, we're talking about memoirs and books by Native American authors. We chat with the Hugo Award-winning author Rebecca Roanhorse about her Navajo-inspired urban fantasy, Trail of Lightning. Then we sit down with Seattleite and memoirs Lisa Jermutsi to talk about her memoir, Altitude Sickness, and her role in the Me Too allegations surrounding Sherman Alexi. Plus, we recommend some memoirs we love. Hi, everyone. My name is Rebecca Roanhorse, and I am a speculative fiction writer. I write primarily um, fantasy and science fiction, and I work uh, in indigenous futurisms and what I like to call uh, res-based fantasy. And what does indigenous futurism mean to you? Um, I think, you know, it's sort of uh, looking at uh, the future from an indigenous perspective. So I think you can sort of come at that two ways. You can look at that as being in dialogue with... um, colonization or colonialism, um, and sort of speaking back, uh, to those, to those, to that history and those tropes, for example, uh, rather than thinking of 1492 as the day that Columbus landed or something, you can, you can approach that from a speculative fiction uh, perspective and, you know, make that the day of, of conquest or of genocide or, you know, the beginning of the apocalypse as opposed to the beginning of like the, the discovery of a new world. Um, and the other way I think indigenous futurism works is that uh, you can write a story that has absolutely nothing to do with colonialism. You can write what I would call a sovereign story, a story from indigenous cultures or an indigenous perspective uh, that, that doesn't engage, uh, in sort of Western culture at all, that it only focuses on its own culture and its own, uh, internal stories and, and mythos. In the book, uh, Trail of Lightning, we get a little bit of a sense of the world outside, um, Dinata, mostly from Kai, who's from what used to be Albuquerque, but for the most part, it's kind of its own contained world and it's protected by this massive wall. Can you tell us about the wall? Oh, sure. <laughs> so that's a little bit of a, you know, political commentary that sort of uh, motivated that wall idea. Um, but I like the idea of um, indigenous people uh, building a wall after the apocalypse uh, to sort of keep everyone else out. Uh, I thought that would be sort of ironic. But of course, in uh, my book, The Apocalypse for the Rest of the World is a rebirth for um, the Navajo or the Diné. Um, so their wall is not sort of your typical concrete, you know, uh, harsh, ugly, apocalyptic wall. Their wall is beautiful. It's made um, from stones or shells uh, representing the four sacred mountains that surround uh, Dineta. Um, and it's made hand in hand uh, with the Navajo gods and the holy people and um, the Hatali, the, the medicine men. Um, and so it's something to protect them and uh, to keep them safe uh, and to let the culture rise up uh, and sort of um, in a renaissance, sort of a rebirth within the wall. 
sort of building on some themes there. There's a lot of fun stuff in this book. It's got like really great action and adventure scenes. It's got an awesome fight scenes. There's a homemade flamethrower and monsters romance, but it also has a really dark side. Um, Maggie's power is the result of a very horrible trauma in her life. And that scene isn't the only one of graphic violence. How do you balance that fun adventure stuff with the more serious side? Yeah. You know, I think, (laughs) I think, uh, coming from marginalized cultures, um, when one comes from one and, you know, for me uh, being native and, and being black, I think that balancing the horror with the humor sort of comes naturally. I think that that's life. Uh, I think particularly, uh, for a lot of native folks on the res, uh, life can be really difficult. Uh, it can be a lot of struggle. There can be a lot of trauma. Uh, but what I really tried to do was have strength come from that trauma and, and sort of explore that idea. Um, and so what, well, the, the sort of superpowers in the book, the, the magic that, uh, Maggie and others are able to, uh, find that comes from their heritage, from their clans, um, is triggered by trauma, by some sort of deep trauma. Uh, you know, the book sort of explores the idea that, Something good can come from something bad. And I don't really give you the answer. And the characters in the book don't agree. Uh, Maggie certainly thinks that's not the case. She thinks that her powers are a curse. Um, but I think the idea is one that's intriguing. And so I sort of wanted to, to play with that. And I think as far as, you know, sort of the, the violence in the book, I really wanted the book, like you said, it can be a lot of fun and it's an adventure. And I think readers can read it that way. And that is great. Um, I want people to enjoy the book clearly, but, uh, for me, a lot of the book is about violence and the effects of violence on someone's life. Uh, when you go through something that's so traumatic, how that sort of affects all the relationships that you try to create, because Maggie's completely terrible at these relationships, whether they be friendships or mentorships or, or, uh, romantic relationships, whatever it is that she's trying to do this trauma that she's experienced as, as a teenager uh, sort of radiates out and, and impacts all of her decisions. And so for me, it was really important to talk about, you know, violence in a very visceral way, not to sugarcoat it or uh, to make it too cartoony or anything. I wanted it to be, you know, pretty dark. And I wanted that the book to be this sort of exploration of the impact of violence on a person's life. Something you said just reminded me of this Toni Morrison quote. If there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And for many marginalized people who love speculative fiction, the transition from fan to creator is precisely that journey. I'm wondering, is Trail of Lightning one of those books? It definitely is. Uh, Yeah, because, you know, Trail of Lightning sort of falls in the urban fantasy genre. I use a lot of those familiar tropes and then, you know, try to put my spin on them. But I wanted to to keep that sort of familiar uh, structure to the story that, that urban fantasy readers are, are, uh, know about. Um, and, you know, I'm a big fan of the genre and I'd read a lot of urban fantasy that had uh, native characters, but they didn't really ring true for me. You know, their, their nativeness uh, was often, they didn't know their tribe or it was often limited to, you know, one power, maybe like a, a nature power or a shape-shifting power or something. Uh, but the world that they lived in was very 
uh, European centric. I mean, they had like, you know, elves or werewolves or vampires or whatever you have you, uh, that you see in, um, a lot of, um, mainstream urban fantasy. And so as much as I love those books, I wanted to see a book that had a native character that was living in a native world that was surrounded by, you know, the traditional stories uh, from her own culture that she knew her tribe and that her powers didn't come simply from some nature element or, or animalistic element, but came from something deeper, um, something that had to do with who she was uh, in my, in this case, in Maggie's case, as a Dene woman. Um, and that she would be living in this milieu of gods and heroes and monsters um, from the Nay culture. And yeah, that's what I wanted to read. So that's what I wrote. Growing up, who were some of the authors and their characters that spoke to you? Oh, goodness. <laughs> you know, I growing up, I read a lot of... Um, Questing farm boys, as I always say, you know, I, <laughs> I read uh, Belgariad and, you know, Tolkien and uh, I, I had a session with like the Dragonlance Chronicles, I think, you know, sort of the stories everyone was reading, I guess, at that age. Uh, and maybe Dune is the one that really broke through for me. I'm still a huge Dune fan. Um, and I think that was the first time I saw an indigenous culture that that I kind of got interested in, you know, I was like, Oh, look, you know, there's indigenous people in this book and, and they're not just laconic, you know, horse people <laughs> sort of thing, which is what you usually see in, in, um, epic fantasy. If there's any kind of indigenous culture, they're riding horses and, you know, they're stoic and you're just, uh, uh you know, I don't come from a, um, a tribe that even rides horses. So that was really always like, uh, disappointing to me. No, I read actually in college, uh, I read a lot of uh, African-American literature. Uh, and so some of the classics like Toni Morrison and Alice Walker and Zora Neale Hurston and, and James Baldwin. And I think that's when I started saying, Hey, you know, I can, I could see my experiences and myself, you know, in books. And I was a genre fan. I wanted, I wanted to see my stories or myself in science fiction and fantasy. Um, Although I suppose like uh, Morrison, you could argue is pretty fantastic, but um, yeah, so probably not until then. And then, you know, like I said, I think urban fantasy has uh, sort of let me personally down and science fiction and fantasy in general has sort of let me down as far as representation is concerned, but that's certainly changing. I mean, I think that the face of the genre um, and all these incredible stories both in short fiction and in novels that are coming out these days um, are great and not only are they quality stories but there's all these voices we haven't heard before and you know they're brilliant the, the things that they're bringing to the table just blow me away can you tell us uh, some of those more recent titles that you're either titles or authors that you're enjoying now Oh, sure. Let's see. Uh, I just read the Broken Earth trilogy, of course, uh, N.K. Jemison, who won the Hugo three times in a row for those novels. Uh, just excellent. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, R.F. Krang, uh, who wrote The Poppy War. I just read Jade City as well uh, by Fonda Lee, which was this wonderful sort of uh, Hong Kong plus gangsters um with a little bit of magic thrown in, um, sort of saga, sort of godfatherish. Um, 
Jenny, what else have I read recently? Uh, I'm reading The Changeling by Victor Lavelle right now. Uh, and I'm looking at my wall. And uh, <laughs> I probably should be looking at my Kindle, actually. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of The Prey of Gods by Nikki Drayden. I really enjoyed that one. Um, uh, oh, Everything by Nettie Okoafor. Uh She's wonderful. So yeah, there's a, just, just a lot of options. There's a lot of great stories being told. Um, and, and I'm here for it. I'm so excited about it. <laughs> so speaking of the Hugo Awards, congratulations. You are also a Hugo Award winner. Thank you. Yes, I am. <laughs> Can you tell us what that experience has been like? Oh, you know, it's been pretty intense, I guess. You know, I, I wrote the, so I won it for a short story. Welcome to your authentic Indian experience, trademark. Uh, that was published in Apex Magazine um, in August of last year, in 2017. And, um, you know, I was, <laughs> that's actually the first short story I ever wrote. And wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I wrote it uh, because uh, the special guest editor, they were doing a special issue of um, Indigenous Fantasists, as they called it. Um, and uh, the special guest editor, Amy Sturgeon, put out a call asking for people, uh, to submit stories for consideration. And I was like, well, I have to, I have to do that. That's so cool. You know, I want to be a part of that. Um, cause how often do you get a call, you know, for indigenous science fiction and fantasy, um, more now, but not very often. Uh, and so I wrote that story specifically for that issue of the magazine, uh, never, well, not even sure if they were going to publish it, you know, never thinking it would blow up the way it did. So it's just been a total like shock and surprise. And, you know, I'm humbled and honored and all of those things uh, that people say are totally true because, you know, I'd never written a short story before. I had no idea, no idea that, that people would respond to it the way they did. And so it's just really been a blessing. It's very exciting. Yeah, that's how incredible to win that for your first story and then also for Trail of Lightning to come out. Right. And I had actually sold Trail of Lightning uh, before uh, I wrote the short story. Uh, So I knew, you know, Trail of Lightning was coming, but the publishing cycle is long and it was going to, you know, 18 months from sale to shelf sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I knew I knew that was coming. I, I wasn't sure how that would be received either you know you sort of uh you you write your story and then you throw it out there and you you see what people like and don't like um but that's been pretty positive too and i think you know clearly the hugo and um the nebula when the nebula as well have helped raise a profile for both the book and the short story so i really kind of lucked out that was that was very helpful thank you everybody who voted (laughs) (laughs) So if we can get back to the book, I know we're almost out of time, but I just have a few questions about the book. Um, One of the things that I really loved about it was all the secondary characters. Mm. I'm particularly partial to Ta, Kai's grandfather, but I also loved Grace. Mm. Um, Friends the bar that's a sort of place of refuge and an important location. Do you have a favorite secondary character? And can you tell us about him or her? Oh, gosh, I can't pick favorites. Those are all my babies, right? Um, you know, I do love Grace. Uh, I, I think she's sort of a, a neat character, and I can I can visualize 
uh, everything about the All-American in my mind and, you know, the bar. And, you know, she's sort of this uh, tough as nails, like gun running, bootlegging, you know, like woman who's who's made her way, you know, on the reservation. Uh, she's African-American uh, and she has, you know, carved out her spot. And uh, I think she's, a, I like her. I think she's a great character. And of course, she's an older woman too. And you don't get to see a lot of uh, older women uh, in science fiction and fantasy. Um, so I was excited to write her and have her, you know, be a character that, you know, really gives Maggie a lot of crap, honestly. <laughs> and is one of the few who can do it, you know, sort of successfully. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I'm excited to see where she's, she, she'll be around. She's not going anywhere. Uh, so she will make an appearance in book two, uh, as will um, her kids the twins and, and freckles. Uh, so yeah, I'm out. I will pick her, but I will reserve the right to change my mind. And for readers who've already devoured trail of lightning and can't wait for more, when will the sequel be published and what can readers look forward to? So storm of locusts, uh, the second book in the, um, six world series, uh, will be out in April of 2019. And I call that book, my, uh, girl gang post-apocalyptic road trip down route 66. Uh, (laughs) so in that book, um, Maggie and Rissa, who's Grace's daughter, uh, and a couple of other, uh, characters you have met yet to meet, um, go on a, uh, road trip down, uh, route 66 through what's left of Northern Arizona in the apocalypse. So in book two, you get outside of the wall, um, and you see a little bit about what happened to the rest of the world. And you're going to run into all sorts of um, interesting uh, characters, uh, newborn casino gods and cult leaders and and um, all sorts of stuff like that. Sounds fun. I can't wait. Yeah. Yay. So I, I hopefully like that one's sort of a, a more typical post-apocalyptic uh, road trip story, but I think it's a lot of fun. Are there any other uh, indigenous authors, futurists or otherwise, that you think should be read more widely? Oh, um, you know, I love Daniel Wilson. Uh, he wrote Robopocalypse, uh, and he sort of, he says, what if the machines rise up and, you know, cause the apocalypse? Uh, but he's Cherokee and he's got some great, uh, sort of twists on that story. Uh, it's very cinematic. It's a lot of fun. So I'm a big fan of Stephen Grant Jones who wrote Mapping the Interior. He won the Bram Stoker uh, award for that. And he should have been towards horror, but, um, really, Really interesting, uh, provocative stuff. So I'm also a big fan of uh, Sherry Dimaline, who's a Canadian First Nations uh, writer. She won the Kirkus Award uh, for her YA novel, The Marrow Thieves, which is a post-apocalyptic take. Uh, it's a story uh, where uh, all the non-Native people have stopped dreaming. And the only way they can dream is to consume the marrow of Indigenous people's bones. And, uh, so it's, it's sort of dark, <laughs> but, um, it's, it's fascinating. It's a great metaphor for sort of the exploitation of, uh, indigenous lands and cultures and people. Uh, and it's all about found family and there's sort of a, it does end on like a positive note. So if you, if you don't like grim, don't let that put you off. It's a, it's a great book. Well, I can't wait to read all of those. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. Our pleasure.
Lidza Dermutzi writes about difficult topics from mental illness to grief and loss and sexuality. She also played a role in bringing the Me Too allegations about terminal Lexi to light. Her memoir, Altitude Sickness, examines the death of her best friend in a climbing accident. We talked to her about gender, anger, Me Too, and more. I am Lidza Dermutzis. I am the author of Altitude Sickness, published on Future Tense Books from Portland's indie publisher. I'm an essayist with the Washington Post, and I've freelanced for about 15 years. I've written for New York Magazine, Esquire, Salon, NPR. A lot of venues I'm really proud to be associated with, and working diligently on my second book. Your work has appeared in some of my favorite publications, like The Believer and Jezebel, and you've interviewed incredible artists like Janelle Monet and The Decemberist and Death Cab for Cutie. Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Did you set out thinking, like, I'm going to make literary fiction or be a blogger or a journalist? (laughs) Or how did that happen? I always wanted to be a writer. I started keeping a journal from the age of 10, which is really funny when you go back and reread them. I majored in creative writing at the University of Washington. Many of my family members are attorneys. And my detour in life was going to law school for a year realizing, God, I hate this, and leaving law school after a year, I feel really fortunate that at a young age, I did something I hated. You know, I value the profession, I just didn't want to do it. I caved to family pressure. But when I got out of law school, I realized, God, I'm not listening to anyone else's advice again about my own life. And my family is wonderfully supportive now, but at the age of 22, telling your Greek parents, my mom was a deputy prosecuting attorney, my father was supervisor of the sentencing unit, telling them, even though my grades were very high, I don't want to become an attorney. I'm going to be a writer. That was not met with like a warm reception. And as I've joked, I think my mom yelled at me more than Charles Manson's mom probably yelled at him. She got over it and we're we're extremely close. But yeah, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. And your book, Altitude Sickness, is a little over 10,000 words, um, which is a length that's kind of uncommon in print publishing. Too long for magazines, too short for traditional print runs for novels, and it came out of this Portland-based small press called Future Tense Books, and it was released as both an ebook and a physical chapbook. I'm wondering, as an author, as a reader, how do you feel about the differences, the strengths, limitations of print and digital mediums in terms of the reading experience and the publishing experience? The advantage of the ebook side of it was we were able to do it very quickly. Future Tense Books, they approached me in March 2014. By October 2014, we had the book out. The disadvantage is I'm 51. I'm still of that that era that you want to physically hold the book. So when it came out as a chapbook, I was so excited because it just felt much more real. For two years, I had been taking notes about the neurobiology of climbers and extreme people who engage in extreme sports not knowing what this was going to become. I even had a file on my computer called Altitude Sickness, knowing it would be the title of something, but I didn't know what it was going to become. So when Kevin and Matthew emailed me, we settled the whole thing less than half an hour. It was one of the greatest and easiest writing experiences of my life. And I've I've been moved by the way it it seems to resonate with people. And memoir as a genre is frequently 
gendered as a feminine form of writing and as a direct consequence sometimes dismissed or diminished by folks who view it as somehow less literary. And I'm curious if you have any resistance to the label of memoir, because Altitude Sickness is a book that combines both personal stories from real life and that reportage of neurobiology. Do you think of it as a memoir or narrative nonfiction or something else entirely? We talked about that after I finished it, because much of it is memoir, and then much of it, like you said, is reportage about neurobiology. I, You know, at this point, I've started to call it a memoir just because everyone else calls it a memoir. Most accurately, it's a collage, but even that as a genre gets picked apart. I realize that people view confessional works as more feminine, whatever. Uh, <laughs> I write what I write. I was writing essays before they became trendy. Part of it is I have been disabled for 27 years. Uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is what I have, is similar to MS. So I spend a lot of time alone. I can't travel the world anymore. I was extremely lucky in that when I was healthy, I got to see the world a lot. Uh, I traveled a lot. The sicker I get, the more confined my physical world becomes. So if I write a lot about my own life and the people in my life, it's because that's what my world is. So for me, it's one is organically born from the other. I write a lot of first person because I'm alone a lot. That's just the nature of my life. Uh, you mentioned that people find the book funny. And for me, that was one of the most striking things about it is this sort of um, searing combination of humor and anger. Thank you. Yeah. Can you <laughs> speak about how those emotions influence your work? I wanted to be rigorously honest and Neil was his nickname. The reason I call him Neil in the book, he used to tease that I was Jack Kerouac and that he was Neil Cassidy. And while he was alive, I published four pieces about him when he was alive, that he bopped around the world doing things. And I was the one who lionized him and wrote about him. We were together on and off for 21 years. We both had great loves apart from each other, but we talked every day. God, we made each other laugh. For all the ups and downs, we made each other laugh. The only way to honestly recount this story would to was to tell it in a funny way. And it's in no way disrespectful to him. I think it's much more respectful to his memory to be funny. And he was hilarious. Also, that's just organically, like a lot of people whose work gets deemed funny, that's how I process grief and the worst pain. And also, I think when readers are reading, they're more likely to absorb what you're trying to say if there's something comical in there. It's it's not tactical. That's just organically how I write. But if it were just 10,000 words about this scar that still eight years later has not healed, I don't know who wants to read that. You know, we've all grieved. We've all lost. I wanted to do something more than that. I wanted it to be a tribute to who he was. The anger that you noted in Altitude Sickness that is obviously, and I even say it in the book, it's because I love him so much. It's Some days it's easier to be angry than it is to miss him. In Greek culture, that's not really that noteworthy. And to the best of my knowledge, Altitude Sickness was only reviewed once by a Greek writer, Greek-American. But she honed in on it in many ways. It's a Greek-American demonstration of grief there's there's not some taboo in Greek culture when it comes to loving someone so profoundly and deeply and probably more than you'll ever love anyone else and still being really angry at them. I, I've seen that 
comment. You know, we're all not supposed to read the comment sections, but of course, sometimes <laughs> you give in to your worst impulses and you do. Uh, Jerusalem is angry. Jerusalem is angry. Fine. I don't care. Yes, as a human, <laughs> I am angry sometimes. If you're a woman and you display anger for the most righteous, logical reasons, you're still going to get tagged with it. I think that's a nice thing about getting older. I just simply don't care. I'm going to write what I write and I'm going to say what I say. And I think especially in 2018, it's, it's profoundly dangerous for women to stay silent. This is not the time to pretend or to put a happy face on things. I think we have every right to be angry. And you frequently tackle subjects in your writing that are difficult, ranging from experiences of someone living with chronic physical or mental health issues to the profound grief of losing your best friend. As an author constructing these narratives, you have a lot of choices in terms of how much you reveal and what tone you take. And I would characterize your work as very generous and intimate and full of vulnerability and regard you as brave for being willing to you know, be angry at someone who's dead or talk <laughs> very honestly about like stigmatized subjects. And I'm curious, how did you develop that voice and make those choices? And what do you see as the value of telling these stories the way that you do? I think the value is we're all human. And at our core, we've got so much in common. And I'm not saying that in a cheesy kumbaya way, because there are real differences, as we know. What I look for when I'm reading or what I value most in my friendships are when we when you can really trust someone and let your walls down. I don't see any logic to to maintaining these walls or to ascribing stigma. I have written a lot about disability, about grief, about mental health. I think there was an essay called After the Fire, and it made it to most notable essays for Best American Essays. And I wrote it a year after TJ died. But I talk about the fact in, in the grief literature, no one tells you if it's your lover, your partner who dies, as you try and reclaim your sexual sense of self, how freaking crazy that is because sex is so fundamental and something you associated with pleasure and joy is now hardwired in your brain to the worst pain you've ever experienced. I was bombarded in, in the best way with letters from people saying, God, I thought I was crazy. I thought it was just me. And those are the sort of human experiences where I think all of us feel isolated or alone or crazy or, oh, my God, am I the only one who's gone through that? And I think the more we can all relate on a human level, that's what I look for when I'm reading. And that's, that's just organically how I write. Oh, that's such a gift to readers. I'm wondering who are some authors who do that for you, who reach in there and make you feel so like seen and understood. <laughs> God, Alexi. Alexi was my all-time favorite author. We became friends because I interviewed him. I've read all 27 of his books for the last 10 years. I was on a short group of his friends who he sent his work to while he was still working on it. So that, number one, obviously, is different now. <laughs> Pat Oswald, I know we don't conventionally think of as an author, but, God, I love his books and I love his stand-up so much, and especially Annihilation, his stand-up that he did after his wife's death. It's just masterful. It's one of the funniest things you'll ever listen to, and you'll break down crying at least twice if you're human. In this last year, through a lot of different venues, I've met a lot of different women authors whose work I hadn't read before, uh, 
journalist Jacqueline Keeler is amazing. Tiffany Midge is a humorist who writes a lot for McSweeney's, is utterly hilarious, just devastatingly funny, and I love her work. Virginia Woolf, obviously, Dorothy Parker, obviously. I will always, always, always return to Carrie Fisher's Postcards from the Edge, and I know I'm supposed to say Tolstoy or something, and I love Tolstoy. I think we all love Tolstoy. (laughs) But if I'm crying in bed and it's been a really lousy day and I just want to eat popcorn and curl up with the dog, I'm not rereading Anna Karenina. I am rereading Postcards from the Edge. So Postcards from the Edge, if I'm, if we're being honest here, Postcards from the Edge and both, both of Mindy Kaling's books, I think I've committed them, all three of those, to memory. And I was an enormous admirer of Anthony Bourdain. Perhaps he was penalized for being angry, but I didn't see it in the obituaries. We all valorized him for going after Alec Baldwin when Alec Baldwin was just being demonic regarding Re- Me Too. And Bourdain eviscerated him. And we were glad Bourdain eviscerated him. And so as a part of that Me Too conversation, it's really taking place in the literary world right now. Yes. Um, There's a reckoning (laughs) with allegations of sexual harassment by high-profile authors from Jay Asher to Gino Diaz. And it can be difficult to process that when it's just like your favorite author from afar. But I can only imagine what it's like when it's a close personal friend. And, you know, there have been a lot of variations and consequences for folks, whether that's losing a contract or a position. And, you know, we've seen with the Boston Review, they came to a different conclusion. Yes. <laughs> and I think as a society, God. we're all grappling with what to do with these people and trying to hold a truth all at once that acknowledges their creative contributions, the harm that they've done the harm that's been done to them and the differences in responses when either or both victims um, are from marginalized communities. I think there are two factors at play. Quite obviously, Alexi was a National Book Award winner and had published 27 books in 27 years and was internationally known. Diaz had won the Pulitzer and hadn't published as many books, but was also in the Pantheon. So those two were much better known. So quite obviously, they're going to get a disproportionate amount of press. What has concerned a lot of women is Diaz seems to... The women who have come forward thus far are almost exclusively women of color. And with Alexi, I have read, I don't know how many dozens of emails from women at this point, but they are disproportionately from Native women. I never would have gone public with those allegations if I didn't know they were true. What I think sometimes people don't understand when any woman comes forward, whether it's in the literary industry, not only is the woman taking on the man in question, but if the man is prominent, she is taking on his agents, his managers, his attorneys. So you're taking on an army. And you don't do that lightly. I would never have done it if I didn't know I was telling the truth. And I am telling the truth. I was, am, and will be telling the truth. Native, it turned out so many Native authors had known for so long. And once I came forward, the floodgates just burst. What saddens me, and I've been grateful that so many of the women authors in question I've become good friends with, um, they didn't feel that they could come forward. A lot of them had known for years. They are professors. They have PhDs. They have published more than me. 
And they felt that as Native authors, they would just get dismissed if they came forward. No one wants this to be a witch hunt. I think the biggest misconception about Me Too in any industry is that any woman is enjoying this. None of us are. It's, it's horrific. You have nightmares. You're nauseous all the time. No one's enjoying this. Um, it should, there should be a threshold of proof, but once you've proven it, There have to be consequences. There absolutely have to be consequences. I'm quite comfortable with the fact that Hachette is saying they're not publishing any more of Alexi's books. He brought this on himself, and it's, it's heartbreaking. It is utterly freaking heartbreaking. This was one of my closest friends. There is no joy in discovering one of your closest friends has harmed countless women. As I've written in my statement, I was a domestic violence victim advocate for almost two years. Once women started coming forward with Me Too, their details were so specific to him, it would have been grossly amoral to look the other way. And for all the nights I have not slept, for all the times I've thought I'm going to throw up, and for all the women in this story, we've all been there for each other. Women have had panic attacks. We've all had nightmares, nausea, just feeling completely overwhelmed. We've all had the most horrific things written about us online. I don't regret it for a second. We, we spoke the truth. What means more to me than anything is all the emails and private messages I've received from people, most of them strangers, saying, when I was being abused, I wish someone had spoken up. People knew the overriding question has to be a moral one. If you yourself are physically safe, fine, people are going to say crappy things about you online. It's not the end of the world. If you're telling the truth and if you're in a position to stop it, you have a moral imperative to do so. I knew that we had a really bad problem with tokenism in the publishing industry. I didn't realize just how bad it is until all of these stories came forward how many of the Native authors in question, particularly Native female authors, were told explicitly by their publishers and their agents, get a blurb from Alexi, get an introduction from Alexi, see if you can get a recommendation from Alexi. We have a publishing industry that is, like we were saying, overwhelmingly controlled by whites who still viewed any other Native author through the prism of Alexi. And what killed me is sometimes I'm associated with other authors with a disability, but it's not that big of a deal. They got lumped in with him, whether their writing had anything to do with his or not. And they were put in a position where they had to play ball with him. And as a white writer, I've never faced that once. I get to stand or fall based on the merits of my own writing, and that has to be true for everyone in this industry. I've never had a publisher or an editor ever say, go find a Greek person to endorse you. Uh, there's a phenomenal wealth of, of talented Native authors who, it's, it's strange and sad that they're getting the spotlight now because Alexi's career has been significantly damaged. It would have been wonderful if their work had been allowed to shine on its own. What are you reading now? Uh... God, the Washington Post covered the cover each day. Um, I am about to dive into um, Tiffany Midge, the woman who married a bear. 
And she's the humorist I referred to earlier. She just did a piece on McSweeney's last week. Just devastatingly funny. So Tiffany Midge, the woman who married a bear, is next up for me. Alyssa Washuda, who is on the record in the NPR story and further went on the record for KUOW. Her first book, the Bo- uh, My Body is a Book of Rules, is amazing. And her second book, Starvation Mode, is on Future Tense books, too. Um, obviously, Joy Harjo. Joy Harjo, of course. Louise Erdrich, of course. Erica Wirth, and she spells it with a U. Sometimes people forget that, W-U-R-T-H. I really want to read Tommy Orange's There, There. I have not gotten to it yet. I've read the excerpts. But so many reviewers, critics, everyone just felt like, oh, we have found the one, and we don't need to keep looking. And it was harmful, because there are just so many talented authors who were getting overlooked. And if something good is coming out of this, aside from the fact we are demonstrating this has to be a safe industry. But the second thing is just take authors as they are. Don't, like I said, don't get hung up on comparing every native author on the planet to Alexi, except that, wow, millions of people have, have created more than one talented guy. And that, that just shouldn't have been such a hard hurdle to clear. And I think maybe we've reached a turning point. You know, it's interesting with the, like, don't read the comments comment that you had earlier and talking about Twitter and activism and what it can do. I'm curious how you see the role of social media in an author's life now. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a necessary evil. It's a necessary, I don't know, like I joke, it's kind of the necessary, let's say you hypothetically, you have to give your shot of self a shot of insulin every day to survive. You don't enjoy it, but it keeps you alive. If I could, I would probably opt out. I'm not at a point in my career I can do it. With me, too, it's been... We've never seen anything like it in history. We are the first women in history who have a chance to stop it. Many of these opportunities are arriving via social media. So... For all the trolling and the hateful things that get said online, I would still say the sum total is beneficial. The, the, the absolute terrifying part is, as we've seen with Gamergate or in other stories like that, when it's no longer just trolling and it becomes a real question of exigent safety and no one, male, female, non-binary, should have to endure that just for speaking the truth. And that's what I think we've got to address more, and I don't really know how. If you look at it in the scheme of things, we're only 10 years into social media. We still don't have as many safeguards as we need. Um, It can be really terrifying to read some of the things people say about you when you know you're telling the truth. Sure, you can be tough and brave, but it'll, it'll take a toll. It will take a toll. My big concern is how many people have faced harassment in real life as a result of something they said online. And for any authors listening, I heartily recommend becoming a member for Penn USA, which is one of the largest human rights literary organization nonprofits. Um, and they've been around for, what, 100 years now worldwide? And they fight on behalf of writers and authors worldwide and in the U.S. who face any sort of legal repercussions for speaking out. And they're actively working, trying to find ways to keep us all safer when, when we're online. 
Are there any other organizations that authors should know about? Oh, I, I don't think this is a political statement. I think in 2018, most authors are going to agree. ACLU and Southern Poverty Law Center, I think it's imperative as authors, what do we do for a living and what do we do by choice? We distill complicated thoughts and emotions into something palatable. And I think all of us who, who know how to write... It's, it's imperative that we're on the front lines working on behalf of others. And I, and I don't think, I don't have some delusion that writers or artists are powerful. We're not oil companies, for God's sake. Um, but we do have a certain set of skills, and I think it's important right now to use them on behalf of others. mentioned that what writers do is distill complex emotions into experiences that other people can understand. So we have a couple of memoir picks to share with you that we think do just that. Um, I'm going to start. My pick is The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson. This book is basically impossible to describe, but it's also one of my favorite books of all time, so I'm going to try. In The Argonauts, Maggie Nelson writes about pregnancy, about the birth of her child, about her relationship, and her partner's gender transition. She's called the book Auto Theory, so she incorporates gender theory and parenting theory. She uses literary theory and psychology and more to build a frame for her very specific story. She's a wonderfully clear-eyed observer of herself and of other people, and the writing is frank and intimate, but it's also cerebral. It's deeply intellectual, but grounded in the realities of her own bodily experience. I've never read anything like it. It's sexy, funny, messy, moving, and mind-blowing. What do you have? Well, one, I totally have to agree. The book is amazing. You get two suggestions from (laughs) us to pick that one up, but I've got a few more. Um, I didn't really get into memoir until I was reading Tina Fey's Bossy Pants, Mm -hmm. and that really started it all for me. And I feel like there was a slew of other celebrity memoirs that came out. Mindy Kaling's books are so hilarious. Lisa mentioned loving those too. Um, Phoebe Robinson's You Can't Touch My Hair is amazing. Then I started reading sort of like non-celebrity memoirs, like the memoirs of writers whose primary job it is to write and Mm -hmm. do it so well are so smart and so funny I just love like Shrill by Lindy West and recently I picked up three books that are kind of all on the same theme. So we've got Sex Object by Jessica Valenti, Landwell by Jess Baker, and Hunger by Roxane Gay. And so all of these tackle issues like objectification and the role of like valuing women's bodies and rape culture. And if that sounds like a huge bummer, don't worry. These authors are also just like so awesome at taking these complicated ideas and making them hilarious, even when they're a little bit tragic. And when I'm done, I just feel like so validated and seen and eager to give them to a friend and I just want more and more and more of those voices in my life and on my bookshelf. So speaking of voices, one of the things that's great about memoirs, I think, is when you have an opportunity to listen to them. So if you are a library user and you don't already know, you can download audiobooks to use on your phone with the overdrive or uh, Libby apps. You can get these apps from the Apple Store, from Google Play, or from Amazon to use on all of your different devices. 
Thanks for listening. You can find all the books mentioned in today's episodes in our show notes. The Desk Set is hosted by librarians Britta Barrett and Emily Calkins, produced by Britta Barrett and brought to you by the King County Library System. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts.